Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Ministry of Propaganda. And tonight we are going to be talking about the one-year anniversary of the escalation of hostilities in Ukraine. Um, I guess you could say the start of the Russo-Ukrainian war or something like that, depending on who you speak to. Um, so, Chris, yes, one year on. What are your thoughts and feelings? What do you want to discuss tonight? So just to start off first off, as you've just introduced it as, and as everybody in the media has been introducing as, they've all been calling it the one-year anniversary. And, of course, we have to match that as well so people can actually find, find our video. Um, but as we both know, this isn't one year. This is coming on 10 years. Um, originally, this, this started in 2014. And I've actually just been actually looking this morning how vigorously um, Ukraine's propagandists have managed to scrub the internet of all references to the Ukrainian civil war, which, if you remember back in the day, this is what this was and this is what this started was. Um, I've actually just I've just been checking right now, and even Wikipedia has managed to remove any article on civil uprising. Now, as far back as 2014, this is always now being referenced as the Russo-Ukrainian War, as this this is mm -hmm. always how it started, and the, this had nothing to do with any internal divisions within the country itself. I just thought it was quite an interesting point just to start on. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, mate. Yeah, I agree with you. It, I mean, the six-month review of the escalation of conflicts, if we want yeah. to call it that, the escalation of conflict, um, which we did six months ago, um, we said, you know, truth is the first casualty of war, which uh, might have been Isachillis or perhaps our American um, senator called uh, Hiram Warren Johnson, who might have been the first, first person to say that. But that's definitely the case here. And like you just said, the decision or the framing of this as the first anniversary is an attempt very much so to uh, try and scrub the eight years or seven years um, of pre uh, conflict that happened before uh, February 24th, 2022. Um, but I think, you know, you have to sort of think about what Zelensky said at some point recently. We said the war started in Ukraine, uh, started in Crimea, and it must end in Crimea. Um, so if that's according to Zelensky, then in fact, actually, according to his own standards, this conflict, whether you want to call that a war, you know, this is now just sort of clutching and sort of uh, splitting hairs over definitions. Uh, but I do think he's correct. It did start in Crimea um, and the yeah. Donbass. Uh, and that's not last year. That started at least eight years ago. Um, yeah. yeah. In fact, what it is, so, it's splitting hairs and the definition of Ukrainians, yeah. effectively. Yeah. People always say, oh, yeah. we, we're fun helping uh, the Ukrainian government because we, we're, we need to save Ukrainians. But mm -hmm. it's very much what qualifies as a Ukrainian because those people who were born in Donbass are Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. They speak Russian primarily, um, but the way the media portrays them, they were they were never Ukrainians. They, they'll always write it Russian-backed separatists. You mean Ukrainians? Yeah. These people yeah. separated from the state. Um, mm -hmm. So there's there's a lot of sort of mental uh, gymnastics going on to try and justify why it's okay to have been killing these people. Yes, absolutely. Um... You're right. Uh, that's, I mean, obviously at the heart of it, right? The the national sort of question of, of Ukraine in Russian, uh, in Putin's speech, that was a big thing about sort of talking about the relationship between Russians and Ukrainians historically. Um, but yes, also Russian speakers and their position within this Ukraine. And yeah, the, and what it means to be Ukrainian. This is very much 
a civil war, a war, a national war sort of of defining the nation. Um, I'm just going to play a quick clip here of what happened then back in uh, of the 24th of Feb 2014. So also, I guess, an anniversary in that sense, um, following the Maidan coup where the elected government of Ukraine was overthrown, supported by the West, the infamous Victoria Newland phone call, uh, Senator McCain flying in, John Kerry flying in, and Biden doing his work too back then, yes. um, leading to this uh, overthrow of the government and a coup, and then the response, which, as you can see now in the video, this is what happened eight years ago, um, with Crimea going first, and then an outbreak of uh, basically, yes, a rebellion from the Russian speakers of the country um, in the east, in Donbass. Um, so yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's the prelude. We have to remember that that happened. And in the meantime, um, you know, this sort of the, the, the hottest part of this first outbreak, I guess, kind of peters off in 2016 or 2015, um, as you can see on the map here, but you know trenches were being dug and shells and and exchanges of fire were taking place throughout the seven years. I mean, there are thousands of casualties: Ukrainian uh, civilians, uh, civilians in the Donbas, uh, uh, Ukrainian troops, as well as some um, DPR troops, those republics that then were established. Um, but yeah, you can see just to give you perspective, this is basically what happened before um, 2022 and over the eight years. So. There you can see the sort of area of the country that the civil war was fought. Um, and then, of course, Crimea. But yeah, we've also yeah. then got the, if you want to recap what happened in the last few years. So not last, sorry, few years, last year. So the last year of the conflict, Chris has got this video for us. And this is what it looks like. So we're not going to go through everything. We're not going to go for a, an attempt to talk about every single battle of the war. But um, here you go. This is the conflict as it broke out uh, Oh, hold on a second, Chris. I think you might want to go back there, mate. Let's go back. Sorry. This is the beginning here. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here's the beginning. So this is Feb 24th of Feb 2022. And over the next few minutes, you'll see then how the conflict unfolded. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think it was July yeah. when we last did our video, wasn't it? it was up, uh... Yes, that's right. As we'll see, so originally there was that quite, as we described at the time, an over an overexertion of uh, territory uh, where they spilt into just outside of Kiev. Um, obviously, mm. they rearranged themselves, reformed. Uh, obviously, this it's a massive land border to mm. be trying to occupy. And I think I made, made the joke at the time that I'm not a tactician, but I do play a lot of Hearts of Iron, and I know you don't want the border that that open. Yeah. Uh, to, to fight yes. thousands of miles of, of combat. Uh, so yeah. repurposing it in the uh, south and the east uh, was definitely the smart move. And mm -hmm. by the looks of it here, as we can see, we, we theorized this in our last video, but the border hasn't changed overly dramatically since our last video. Um, yeah. In the past few weeks, uh, well, months after that, we saw a few Ukrainian gains and in the past few months, we've seen some more uh, Russian counter games. Um, mm -hmm. But for the most part, as we sort of suggested, the border as it is, is not likely to change. It's now turned into very much a war of attrition for both sides. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think we'll come back to this point about the initial um, uh, invasion force. 
and how many troops they had uh, and comparing it to other uh, invasion forces over the, over the years or the 20th century particularly. Um, yeah, I do think that that big stretch, the drive to Kiev and, and driving around Chernihiv and all of that stuff they took in the north and the east, northeast, uh, was 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 probably insufficient. Um, you know, I think history, history sort of, or the last year has proven that with the amount of support that the Ukrainians got from NATO, um, it was not enough. Um, it's a big territory. It's a big country. Um, and yeah, I think the, it's safe to say that the borders after the Kherson sort of, the Ukrainians took back Kherson city and that sort of piece of Kherson province over the river, over the Dnieper river. Um, and then the counteroffensive in Kar uh, Kharkov. Um, yeah, things have kind of stayed the same. Um, the only sort of notable thing to say to this though, is that, uh, mo the mobilization with, you know, Putin mobilizing, uh, 300,000 troops and those guys arriving, being trained and arriving, that's taking place now, actually. So the, yes. everyone has been talking about the one year anniversary, the, the, the new invasion, the second wave, what do you want to call it? Um, that is actually taking place. It's not actually taking place as many people thought it might. It, obviously, we haven't seen this uh, surge from the north or from Belarus like like we did a year ago. Um, it appears that they are doing it sort of in the Donbass, around Bakhmut, and breaking through there, but in a much sort of much slower, steadier way. Um, yeah. Bear in mind, I, I'm going to sort of caveat that because a year ago, obviously, <laughs> everyone was saying that this was never going to happen. We we'd been hearing about. Russian invasion uh, and preparation for troops for, for weeks and weeks and weeks. And um, I'm just going to play you a quick clip of uh, myself and Jen back then uh, with another co-host, uh, David, uh, sorry, Dust James, um, laughing about the fact that the, you know, the war was, you know, this, this invasion was, was, was sort of in our faces and we we're going to, you know, it was coming at any point. Uh, and we kept on talking about it for weeks and weeks and weeks. And uh, here you go. Let me play this for you one second. Um, why can't I? I think we've got too many pictures. Oh, there we go. Yeah. So here we go. There's a picture, a video of us laughing about the, this invasion that was never going to happen. About three weeks now, I think, or maybe even longer. About well, it's the been and a subject of discussion ever since we began this program. Right, right, right. Exactly. So we started about, I think, the end of, end of last year, and it hasn't stopped. It's always been there. Troops are coming to Ukraine. Troops are coming to the border of Russia and build up, build up, at least from the Western perspective, this was how it was portrayed, right? There's build up of Russian troops, there's a build up of Russian troops. And the, the, the I guess the, the penultimate moment was they're going to invade on the 16th of February uh, at maybe three in the morning, which was, you know, it's quite, quite shocking that you would give a specific time to it. And it's now the 18th of February and dust, uh, has Russia invaded Ukraine? No, they have not. No. So there you go. That's us uh, getting it wrong, I guess. <laughs> not by far, but, though, to be honest. Well, I mean, it was 24 in the end, wasn't it? So it's <laughs> yeah, 24. Yet. So, yeah, we, we, we got that wrong. But bear in mind, we're not the only ones that got that wrong. Um, Zelensky wasn't sure either. So, I yeah, mean, he wasn't. Uh, he wasn't. So, you know, I he was saying at the time, wasn't he? Saying, well, if, if the West have proof. Uh, intelligence saying that Russia are going to invade. They haven't shared it with us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is yeah. hilarious well, I mean, to think that he was so in the dark that his friends and allies didn't tell him officially through any official channels that an attack was coming. They told the media. I, I <laughs> yeah, I mean, in all fairness, the the West was saying and trying to convince everyone that this was going to happen. Um, 
but they didn't so, so they were related uh, proof yeah yeah so they didn't want to go so so this is this is the issue that um and this will be interesting when we have the conversation about Nord Stream, about protecting sources. So the, the Western, uh, particularly U.S. intelligence agencies, were trying to say this is going to happen, this is going to happen, but uh, didn't want to give them the sources and tell them uh, exactly how they yeah. knew, um, apart from satellite images and whatnot. But uh, even the French and the Germans, there's you know some correspondence that I read in the Washington Post. They said basically, well, because of Iraq, because of 2003 and the false intelligence that was yeah. used to justify that war, the French and the Germans were very skeptical and said that, you know, military intelligence is susceptible to political influence in America. So that's yeah. also why uh, lots of people didn't actually think this was going to happen. And bear in mind, we did have lots of these moments where troops build up on a border. It was quite common, you know, exercises yeah. and stuff. And as we both know, with, with embassies, particularly American and Russian, Every other person at one of these embassies is a spy for the other side. This is like it was only last week or the week before where a British security guard who worked at the embassy in Berlin has just been sent to prison for sending information to Russia. When they actually opened his locker, they found a picture in his locker of Putin putting Angela Merkel in a headlock while she's wearing a Nazi uniform. It's like, you had this in your locker. You are the worst spy in the world. I mean, yeah, I mean, he was definitely a, um, yeah, a wish, a spy from wish.com, right? So, <laughs> yeah. Wait, I didn't know that. So he, had, he actually had a picture of Putin putting Angela Merkel in a headlock in his locker working in his at the locker, embassy, at embassy in Berlin. In the embassy in Berlin. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, yeah, it's just pretty, pretty, pretty low hanging fruit. No, not, not the best spy. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. But you're right, though. Um, Intelligence agencies using diplomats. It's common common practice for intelligence stuff. Um, yeah. So, like we said, we're not going to be able to actually go through every part of this war. I mean, we already did that at the six-month review. I think the six-month review, we yeah. talked about the surge of troops from the north, the sinking of the Moskva, uh, the propaganda war around Snake Island, the battle for Mariupol. I, I'm not going to – we're not going to go through all of that again. I think we're going to cover the second half, actually, stuff that's yeah. happened in the last six months, and then maybe some other points that we want to go over. Um yeah, the first thing I would like to talk about actually then is body count. So how many people have been killed? How many soldiers have died? How many wounded? And this is arguably one of the most political parts of the war um, in terms of, you know, who says which number uh, and, and, and who says any number at all and which side. So often Western sources will only give a statistic on Russian casualties. Sometimes they give a Ukrainian, um, but often they don't. Um, yeah, and, and sort of the number of, of people or number of casualties basically is, is a highly critical uh, number. Um, so I've got uh, a quick clip which I'll play, which did happen uh, in the second half of the war, which is Ursula von der Leyen um, giving out the statistic, which she had to quickly say that it was not what she intended to say, despite having an army of, um, you know, uh, screen uh, uh, script writers and uh, and all sorts of staff who I have no doubt reviewed her speeches or her speech before she spoke, um, they still let her say this. In statement, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has brought death, devastation, and unspeakable suffering. We all remember the horrors of Butcha. It is estimated that more than 20,000 civilians and more than 100,000 Ukrainian military officers have been killed so far. 
Okay. So just to clarify, we're not obviously celebrating about the death of anyone here. We're talking about a war. I hope this, I wish this could be over tomorrow. Um, but yes, she said 100,000 dead and almost instantly had to say, nope, that's not what I meant to say. That's not, I, I was saying casualties. I, I, I was combining casualties with, with, uh, with wounded, with killed, and to some sort of, she actually just repealed that. She didn't I'm even give any She also probably meant military personnel when, instead of officers, because I, I dare say an army probably doesn't have 100,000 officers. <laughs> right. That's a right. hell of well, an officer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So go ahead, Chris. Yeah. Um, so Ukraine have been quite famously tight lipped about their casualty list. Um, I'm probably at the time of our last review, um, they were sort of saying that they couldn't go on with the casualty rate. They were losing 100 men a day. Um, obviously, that is when you sort of try and think of it in a war, it doesn't seem like a lot, but obviously a hundred thousand, a hundred a day tallies up very quickly to a lot. <laughs> and yes. Yeah. Uh, you, you can't go on, but if you consider how long it actually takes to train people to use the equipment that's now being shipped in, I know at the beginning of the war, they were sort of using what they had, which you would have been trained with, here's your rifle, you've got so many shots to train with. Once your clip's gone, you're fully trained. Um, mm. But now there's specialist weapon coming in, which is taking realistically, logically thinking, it takes about a year to learn how to correctly use something like a, a leopard tank. Um, I imagine corners are being cut, and mm. a lot of it is, we're probably going to get into this a little bit later, but I think a lot of the training is sort of being corners are being cut because they don't really expect this stuff to work for very long um the way mm. this equipment is being sourced from different warehouses all over germany a lot of them uh, all over europe so, sorry a lot of them aren't haven't got parts that are interchangeable so a lot mm -hmm. of them will be a case where well, if it breaks down <laughs> you're never gonna be able to fix it you're never gonna be able to find a part yeah. to fix it because one from another leopard tank isn't necessarily gonna work on this one yeah yeah yeah, on that point of tanks, yeah, that is one of the big concerns about the Leopard or Challenger or Abrams. Um, different caliber of round, 120, you know, T-tanks, Soviet-era T-tanks are 125. Um, yeah, parts, it's a different engine, it's different tracks, different yeah. all sorts. Uh, manuals are not necessarily written in Russian or Ukrainian. Um, so repair manuals, all sorts of, there's different layers of, of, of things if you consider there with uh, sending kit, particularly technical kit. Um, yeah. Like that too. So, so like I said, with the special equipment going on now, you would expect that to sort of show some essentially dramatic change in your casualty rate. Um, mm -hmm. Ideally, from a Ukrainian's point of view, you'd want you'd want to see a reducing casualties because now your weapons are longer range, the more accurate, and mm -hmm. you shouldn't be having to get as close to uh, Russian front lines as as they used to. Um, mm -hmm. But obviously, they, they are they are being so tight lipped uh, with what she's just sort of said is quite a it feels like a, a, a proper oops moment that she probably got braces yeah. for afterwards that this wasn't meant to be public knowledge ukraine don't want people knowing how many people they're losing absolutely and yeah um, same Russia, you know, and it completely makes sense for that information to not become public because it's a massive blow to morale when you lose yeah, a lot of people you've got two ways of playing it either build them into heroes of the war and use that to promote recruitment like mm -hmm. it doesn't always work and it can easily 
like if you compare it to the way Russia lost so many troops in World War II, turning those casualties into heroes, which fueled more troops, comparing that to the losses of Americans in Vietnam, where mm. you could lose equal amount of troops, and all that does is fuel the anti-war movement. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Now, this is why the statistic is so um, um, fought over and hidden. So, yes, of course, the Russians um, misreport, I think, or underreport their casualties for the same reason that it's a political thing. It has weight. Um, You know, we're losing our sons, we're losing our our children to conflict. Our our people are being killed. Um, Yeah, it's definitely a political number. Um, Yeah, you mentioned the Vietnam War there, too. So I've actually got some just to give us sort of historical perspective uh, of the last year of this conflict um, what does it compare to um, in terms of losses in terms of deployment to other wars from the 20th century so uh, first I'll just give you the sort of tallies of different individuals that have given different numbers um, regarding this conflict so the last year 2020 um, 2022 sorry Uh, so I've already said Ursula von der Leyen the EU uh, president said 100,000 dead um ukrainian officers so that's the number that she she put out um other sort of statistic i'll just put from the un uh, 18 million civilians have been displaced so a lot of people have have been displaced by this um conflict um coming back to sort of military uh statistics so you then also have the um norwegian chief of the army said that the russian combined uh so wounded and killed is 180,000. uh comparison to that then is the UK Ministry of Defense puts the Russian combined as 175 to 200,000. Um, Russian KIA, according to the Ministry of Defense, the UK Ministry of Defense is between 40 and 60,000 uh, dead soldiers, Russian soldiers. That's, yeah, the UK MOD. Um, Scott Ritter, who's a independent uh, military analyst, a former UN inspector, um, I was listening to one of his streams the other day, he put the his estimate of Russian uh, dead uh, at 45,000. So close to the Ministry of Defense, UK Ministry of yeah. Defense's estimate, actually. Um, Victoria Newland, the famous Victoria Newland, she also put the Russian combined casualties, uh, so that's wounded and dead, uh, 200,000. And then General Mill Miley, the US Chief of Staff, so head of the US military, uh, put Russian combined at over 100,000. So obviously, Victoria Newland, as you'd expect, is trying to make the number as big as possible. Um, yes. General Miley a bit softer. So, I mean, from a, um, you know, to give you sort of idea of the range there, Norwegian says 180K combined. MOD says between 175 to 200. Victoria says over 200. The chief of the general, uh, chief of staff of the US says over 100. And then the only sort of group that I found so far that gives a statistic on Russian killed is Scott Ritter and the UK Ministry of Defense, which is between between 40 and 60, and Kot saying 45. So let's give you perspective on the casualties. Ukrainian casualties, as I said, Ursula says 100,000. She's not supposed to say that. Um, the Ukrainian government themselves says 10 to 13,000 killed, which, if we're honest, is not a non-realistic number at all. Bear in mind that Peskov, the head of the Russian, uh, or sorry, the Putin spokesman, in September said that the Russian KIA was 5,937, which also not a realistic statistic no. um to give you ukrainian um wounded or combined uh the norwegian chief of the army said 100,000 and a british colonel 
who writes for the Telegraph, put it at 120,000. So that gives you kind of some sort of perspective. Um, yeah. Okay, so now to compare it, um, so let's just pick a statistic. Let's just focus on the Russian uh, KIA statistics between 40 to 60. So let's call it 50, the middle, 50,000 um, KIA killed in yeah. action. Um, Vietnam, all of Vietnam. So that's 10 years or, yeah, 10 years of full deployment for the U.S. This is just for the U.S. They had 58,000 killed. So that's 10 years. <laughs> so just to give you an idea of the scale of fighting, we're seeing or have seen uh, fighting that has been equal to, that has killed as many people, uh, many soldiers as 10 years of Vietnam War did for the U.S. at least. Um, for perspective. Korea also the same for US between 54 and 33, depending on which source you look at. So bear in mind, a lot of this is statistics is it the way you measure it, the way you, uh, when you start, when you end, what you consider to be a casualty, obviously does vary. So it's not exact, but even Korea, um, the maximum, uh, the highest number I could find for US killed in action is 54,000. So again, if we say 50,000 Russians have died in this conflict, it equals what the U.S. lost in Korea, which was three years of conflict. So one year of this, three years of that, same number. And again, Vietnam, 10 years of Vietnam equals more or less one year of this. Um, to give you more modern examples, 4.4 uh, thousand uh, U.S. troops died in Iraq, in all of Iraq, seven years of full deployment. Afghanistan, 20 years, only 2.4 thousand. So you're really seeing then um, scale of how how much how vicious the fighting is. I'd want to throw in a comment quick, Chris, on this one. Before. Yeah, I think it's quite sobering, really, to sort of hear hear that comparison. Uh, when this started, um, a lot of the media was almost naively so going to draw a comparison between this and the war in Georgia, which, of course, mm. I don't think even had look at these didn't even reach mm. thousand dead combined. I haven't was, even included that in my comparison. Yeah, I, yeah, I it was a drop in the ocean compared to this. Yeah. What yeah, 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 this yeah. is, is it is a real war of becoming a historical portion. Uh, for the past first nine months of uh, the escalation, uh, it was mm -hmm. consistently referred to as a special military operation. Um, mm -hmm. As of quite recently, you do hear more Putin interchangeably swapping his wording out for he'll start the sentence with special military operation, but the end it with when he's put an end to this war. Mm, mm, and so you are seeing now the, the admission that this is what it is. Mm -hmm. Gone are the days of declaring war. Uh, yeah. It has just sleepwalked into this and yeah, yeah, yeah. it is no, becoming... I, I think Vietnam Afghanistan level conflict right right I mean yeah just on that point of uh, the legality so for example um, the US never declared war on Vietnam um, it was a no. part of you know, various operations um, you know uh, operation. never admitted war in Cambodia <laughs> yeah right exactly that's it and have you admitted it so you know it's not it's quite common for war to happen without the legal yes. declaration of war um, technically, actually, after 1945, it's quite ordinary for that to be the case. Um, for uh, yeah, for perhaps I think Hitler declared war on America, didn't he? But to be honest, who's that? Sorry, after that, I can't think of anybody doing that really. 
right right yeah yeah it's, it's no, quite it, an old-fashioned sort of way of doing it surprise attacks yeah. are the the way in the future yeah. now aren't they yeah yeah no so i mean technically this thing of the smo well i mean operation uh, desert storm was operation desert storm it wasn't we're yes. declaring war on, uh, on on iraq um it's the same thing also operation rolling thunder operation lineback all of the stuff in vietnam was a part of an operation yeah um, the malayan emergency exactly um afghanistan there is, was, there is the, the political usage of of why wars are called this yeah so in common speak, we would say war, but in, on the sort of paper, these things fall into either an operation or something like that commonly, yeah. apart from World War II and proper declarations of war. Yeah. Um, but I agree with you, though, that we're talking about something that um, in terms of, well, actually, uh, yeah, in terms of the, the U.S. element in Vietnam, the, the Russians have already lost an equal amount of troops to what the U.S. lost in all of Vietnam. Um, you have to sort of then look at what the South Vietnamese and North Vietnamese lost uh, to get an idea of, of actually what the comparison is. So the South Vietnamese lost between 250,000 um, across, you know, the sort of 10-year period. And then the North Vietnamese, if you count, well, they count from 1955 to 1975, so a bit longer, but they lost 1.1 million. So if we're talking about comparison, then we're talking about something that is the Vietnam War, but from the perspective of the Vietnamese, not just the Americans. So this has already surpassed and will surpass what the Americans lost in um, Vietnam. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, just if you're looking on one force, just to give you then perspective. So if we're going to compare conflicts, which is what we're trying to do, trying to place this conflict in an historical context and its size and proportion compared to other historical conflicts, um, you know, World War One. So if you want to use a World War One reference, of course, this is not as big as World War One or World War Two. Um, but it's and hopefully we'll not you know, get to that. Hopefully it doesn't get to that. No, this is just to give you a perspective. So World War One, 1916, Verdun, the Battle of Verdun, which was nine months long, the longest battle of the, the war. Um, the Germans lost 143,000 dead. So that's three times what the Russians have already lost. Um, yeah, over nine months. So yeah, um, that, that's perspective. And then the Battle of Stalingrad, 750,000 dead. Uh, over five months, so a lot more um, than than this. So those are just battles. Bear in mind. So those are just battles within those wars. So there would have been other battles going on, which would have been, you know, maybe the same size or probably a bit smaller. Yeah. So again, we're not quite there. Like it's not as as big and dramatic as that, but it is certainly um, as big as as some of the battles of uh, the big battles of, of World War One and World War Two. Um, yeah, so th that's casualties. Just to give you perspective, again, coming back to this whole thing of how many troops they deployed. So right now, according to the Ukrainians and New York Times, there's 320,000 Russian troops uh, in Ukrainian territory and with reserves of 150 to 250 uh, behind that. So we'll just focus on the active element, the 320,000. Um, in Vietnam, the peak for the U.S. troops was 549,000, so not as many. So we're talking about 200 thousand less uh, than that, 220,000 less than that, 30,000 less than that. Um, Korea, the peak um, deployment was 326,000. So it's about the same. So Russia has about the same, same amount of troops uh, in Ukraine as the Americans had in Korea back in, in, in the 1950s, 1950 to 1953. Um, NATO, all forces never went over 130,000 anytime in Afghanistan. And the USSR, to give a Russian comparison, um, the USSR had 115,000 troops at the peak of about 86, 85, 1986, 95 um, 
yeah, 150,000. So call it a, th a third uh, of what they have deployed to Ukraine, which is quite a big comparison. So this is much bigger than yeah. the war in Afghanistan for for Russians, uh, much bigger. Um, and just yeah, two more statistics I'll leave uh, for this one. Iraq won Desert Storm. The U.S. deployed 700,000 troops, so twice as much as they have in Ukraine now, which is quite strange if you think about it, considering that it was Iraq, which is a far yeah. <laughs> less equipped, much smaller country than Ukraine. So yeah. the U.S. deployed twice as much An army in the that, fight. For the most the part, weapons. put down the weapons fairly quickly. Yeah. But the Republican Guard in Iraq didn't do a tremendous amount of the fighting. It was actually the... the the encounters, the insurgency that did the majority of the fighting afterwards, the Mujahideen. Yes. Yeah. 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 Mainly Al Qaeda and the, and the other Jedi groups. The yeah. <laughs> elite Republican Guard, as the famous sort of Bill Hicks joke mm -hmm. used to go, uh, after a few weeks of fighting, it turned from the elite Republican Guard to the Republican Guard to the Republicans made the shit up about there being guards out there. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, just to perspective again, the Russians have deployed less troops or have less troops right now in uh, Ukraine than both of the Iraq wars. So Desert Storm, as well as 2003, the US had double and then so 700K on the first one and 460,000 in uh, 2003. So 100,000 more than what the Russians have uh, deployed, at least in Ukraine. So yeah, um, still much smaller than some of the battles of World War One. We had half a million or a million people and Barbarossa, 3.8 million. So yeah. I just wanted to do this to give you some perspective and to sober us in terms of where we sit historically comparing this to other conflicts. Um, obviously, there's, every conflict is different. People make references to World War One, or World War II or the Spanish Civil War. Every conflict is actually different. Um, we're talking about a nuclear armed Russia, um, not Iraq, um, not talking about, um, yeah, uh, Vietnam, civil war between Vietnam in Vietnam. Uh, yeah. But in terms of troop deployments at the moment, it's about the same as what the US put into Korea. And the Russians have lost, to, uh, it seems, as many troops as the Americans lost in Vietnam, in 10 years in Vietnam. Um, so, yeah, it's a pretty heavy, big war. We're not talking yeah. about a small thing here. This is a big war. And if you look at those numbers, it doesn't feel like it's going to go away anytime soon. Um, I don't feel like it's going to wrap up quickly. I hope it will. I hope I'm wrong. Um, yes. But those are big numbers. Yeah. Um, no, unfortunately, I, I, I don't... It is one of the one of the points of something to discuss in this episode of how do, how does this end? And there doesn't seem to be an obvious ending. Uh, both sides politically are in a very tenuous position. Um, Zelensky in his government are he doesn't have a firm grip of power, and there are so many nationalist groups in Ukraine that even if he was to do the smart thing and say i'm going to negotiate with russia if there was any hint that those negotiations meant ukraine giving up territory i have every belief that he would he'd be removed there would literally be another nationalist coup in ukraine and it would have an even more hardline group that would say no we're, we're fighting russia until the end there are groups in ukraine and as I, we warned in the last episode everyone now mm. is so well armed if the central government in Ukraine did collapse, it would end up like the end of Afghanistan, that you'd have a thousand warlords armed to the teeth, mm -hmm. all fighting in the same territory for their version of, of Ukraine. And you'd have all the pogroms you can imagine, 
dead dead Russians in the street, that anyone who's speaking Russian languages, dead Jews. Yeah. It would it would right. be right. Right. absolute right. chaos. Right. So, yeah. And I think that is something that obviously the Russians must realize as well that they want the Ukrainian government, they need an opposition there that they can negotiate with. If Kiev falls, then there's nobody to talk to. They still need that central power there. Right. Yeah. No, I, I um, there is so many different ways with the angles of where this could go. There's bad angles. Um, if it goes against Russia and Russia yeah. falls back and, and has to collapse or something like that, there's a lot of bad angles where that goes and who knows where that goes. We'd, we shouldn't want to try and explore that, but also on the other side um, from the Ukrainian end, uh, if this, if they yeah. collapse too, like you said, you've got piles and piles of arms, all sorts of groups with all sorts of ideas and all sorts of adventurists and mercenaries and um, all of that still would, would unravel. And even, you know, when this broke out, people had already started, as you said, pogroms. I mean, they were tying, tying Roma people up to lampposts um, back yep. in 2014, 16, you had the, the, the burning of the trade union hall in Odessa, stuff like that happened even when, you know, a much smaller yeah. uh, level of chaos was taking place in, in Ukraine. Yeah. So God knows what would happen if... Um, and it was if, always against Russian-speaking Ukrainians, leftists, mm. and they didn't, yeah. they didn't care. Like some of the, the victims in the, in the trade union building in Odessa back in 2014 were children. It was... Yeah. And on Ukrainian yeah. TV, they just... They, they applauded when they said, oh, they were, these were Russian foreigners. They mm. literally applauded on national TV that they'd yeah. burn 100 people to death in a building. Yeah. So... It is it is scary how bad things mm. can go, and mm. as you sort of said there with the Russian side, the Americans constantly uh, have been putting their fan fiction to the media, pretending that there's going to be a palace coup in the Kremlin, as if everyone who's surrounding Putin is just dreaming of fields of flowers and peace. And it's like <laughs> you think that somebody that you, you like even less could topple Putin, but. Why do they automatically assume if Putin is removed, the person who gets in is suddenly going to be willing to negotiate with America? Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the devil, you know, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, um, absolutely. Yeah. So just uh, as you sort of alluded to there, now, I think this would be the uh, right time to get into it. So this week, um, there's been a story that has uh, broken. Um, I'm not going to say what news channel it is because... If someone clocks on, we'll get demonetized and removed. They'll see it anyway. <laughs> um, mm. Not demonetized. We're not monetized anyway, but our video will get banned from YouTube if, if it is, because uh, sure. the channel is banned. Um, but a story of a an American, former American soldier, who joined the Ukrainian army and has defected to Russia. And the story goes, this was always his intention. This man says that he is a communist, he's an anti-fascist, and his intention the whole time was to basically plant himself as a spy right in the middle of the Ukrainian government and hand that information to... So I've got a few videos. It was quite a long interview, so I've just pulled out some of the more interesting aspects of this. And I just wanted to sort of share this and see what we think. So here's the first one here. Right, U.S. Army soldier John McIntyre was a foreign mercenary in Ukraine. 
Down at me and all the boys. Say what's up, y'all. Earlier this month, he defected to Russia. He brought everything with him, papers, files, intelligence and maps. The thing is, he always meant to. The first question is, why, why are you here? I mean, well, uh, it's the reason I came uh, to Ukraine in the first place. You know, uh, I'm a communist, I'm an anti-fascist, and uh, we have to fight fascism everywhere. You know, so uh, I came when I came to Ukraine. I knew uh, that I would try to get as much information as I could about, you know, anything that'd be helpful, and uh, defect across lines. The problem is, is uh, when I was in uh, Kharkov, I was going to swim across. And uh, I found out they had uh, snipers in position, so if anybody, uh, and actually found out that the snipers were for defectors, not for actually uh, protection. They were actually, uh, anybody tried to defect, they would shoot them, you know. Since March 2022, John served in Ukraine's Foreign Legion and Nationalist Battalion Karpatska Sech. He saw and documented the Ukrainian war machine in all its ugly glory from the inside. He became part of it god bless ukraine god bless america but f you russia f you russia it's russian the russian can i uh, step on this slava ukraini horon slava it's russia f russia as time went on you know, I had to become more nationalistic, more Nazistic, you know, doing... Does uh, that explain the videos where you were, you were like, f Putin and... F yeah, yeah, of course, of course. It's, uh, it's part of it to maintain my cover because I got to become them. You know what I mean? If I'm going to be with them, I got to become them, you know, and, and doing, the, you know, Hitler salute, stepping on Russian flags, everything. Oh, yeah! <laughs> Karpatska siege, baby. Slava Ukraina, Roy Slava, 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 Slava. Yeah. When I first came, I didn't. I kind of expected they wouldn't be that big of a problem. Like I, I kind of, you know, assumed that it was just. Like a, yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't think there was actually that many. But uh, when I came, I was really surprised. It was everybody have, you know, tattoos and uh, Nazi symbolism. Sometime later on. Uh, on my Facebook page, I had uh, pictures of uh, Che Guevara and uh, the Soviet Union, and uh, I got questioned for having communist views, and uh, I had to think quick on my feet, you know, and I, I just told him, I said, hey, I'm an anti-fascist, I'm here to fight Russian imperialism and the Nazis and this and that, and they said, uh, no, the Russians aren't the Nazis, we're the Nazis. So, yeah, <laughs> quite a lot to sort of unpack there that was just like an introduction just into him i've got a few more clips from the interview uh just sort of pull yeah. out uh, yeah yeah what what do you think i mean i also yeah i'd, I'd seen it before uh, i didn't see the whole thing i think sort of most of what you've just shown there but uh yeah i mean a part of you me obviously you know there's a, there's a part that thinks it reminds me of that scene from um uh, saving private ryan when they captured the german soldier and he's like oh oh fuck hitler oh yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. <laughs> where you want to say maybe he's just saying this because, you know, he's on a sinking ship. He's, I don't know, maybe he's in Bakhmut and he needed to get the hell out of there. And so he's said whatever he needs to say to get out of yeah. there. But, I, I mean, regardless of whether that's true or not, he has shared um, 
the side. Well, that's of, it. It's not the fact you know. that he's saying it. It's what he's provided. That he's arrived with stuff exactly. that he, he's stolen. He's t- he shouldn't have left with the stuff. So it's not like, oh, yes. we've just found some dickhead in the in in the woods. It's like, oh, I, I was a factor. I mean, here to help. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. No, no, I mean, he's given Yeah, he's handed over information. So I, I guess in that functionary sense, he is 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 performed that function. Um, yeah. So yeah, he, uh, I, I, yeah. I mean, again, this is an awkward one for Western media. This is something that they can't report on because he's there showing them with the black sun. He's then showing them with the Tortenkopf, what it's called, the, the skull, not the SS yeah. skull, the literal SS symbol, um, along with, yeah, talking about Hitler salutes, talking about the fact that they're happy to be called Nazis uh, and happy to be associated with, with Nazis. Um, yeah. Yeah. Heard, actually, again, one, uh, Ukrainian defender, tr- the worst defense of, of the SS skull, uh, that it, it wasn't originally Nazi, it was Prussian. Oh, I see. <laughs> oh, right. The, the peaceful Prussian people, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. That's okay, then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, again, we, we've discussed this before. This 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 element of the Ukrainian military does exist. I mean, I, as I said before, it's not every Ukrainian soldier. It's not every Ukrainian, of course not. But the fact no. that they openly allow battalions, regiments, units with yeah. this kind of iconography and those kinds of soldiers... They are allowing neo-Nazi and, and actual fascists to this serve in the army. And fight. Turn, turn a blind eye to it, because you have to remember when when the Nazis got in. I know it is almost a lazy comparison to to, to compare every conflict to uh, Nazis and communists, but when the Nazis did get into Germany, not everyone in Germany was a Nazi. The Nazis were still mm-hmm. a minority party when they got in. They got in because enough people turned a blind eye to it. Mm. And as long as enough people say they won't be that bad when they're in power, mm-hmm. that's what happens. And the fact that Zelensky and his predecessors have said, oh, we, we, we need people like the right sector because they're good fighters. I've heard leftists say to me, like, you've got to admire their fighting spirit, though, haven't you? Of the Azov Battalion. So they are literally Nazis. Like, do you do you have to admire their fighting spirit? <laughs> The SS right. had fighting spirit. You don't have to admire it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, this guy has has made it awkward again. He's an American citizen. He's an American soldier, ex-soldier. Ex, uh, so the fact that he's got that side, that training. I mean, in that video, so he also made some awkward stuff about the fact that there's cocaine and prostitutes and drugs on U.S. bases and stuff. But, yeah, minor point. Let's not go into that. Yeah, yeah. so all, very awkward. Again, this is something that won't be covered, won't be discussed, uh, and sort of kind of brushed aside. Um awkwardly by, by mainstream media, uh, particularly Western media. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's so much, again, to unpack we're talking about here. The other thing I wanted to mention was about, uh, we talked about just numbers of weapons. And I, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but in the first six days of the conflict, this is a statistic that's come out a bit later, is there were 17,000 missiles sent to Ukraine in the first six days after Feb 24, 2022. Um, so that's your javelins, your stingers and whatnot. So there are just these weapons. I mean, the amount of support that um, NATO, particularly the US, has given to Ukraine is insane. It's huge. I mean, we give the statistics six months ago. You know, they gave the entire defense budget equivalent of Russia to the Ukrainians, you know, in, in aid and probably will exceed it. 
Um, yeah, I think you had a, a clip earlier or a picture actually, uh, Chris. I'll share it now with it for us here. Of yeah, of a javelin. Um, yes. up for sale. So, so a photo has come. The screenshot, sorry, has come from. Uh, I don't know if, if any of our viewers know anything about like Tor browsers and the black markets that you can find on there, where basically unlisted weapon markets, drug markets. This is from one of these. So this is oh, it's quite poor resolution. Can yeah, we zoom in on that? Does it let you zoom uh, in? On we can. It's, no, it's not quite zoomable. But okay, we'll, we'll give you perspective. Yeah, so it's from it, the thief yeah. market. This is yeah. a javelin missile that we've given to Ukrainians that the Ukrainians have stuck online for peanuts compared to its true value. But of course, for them, yeah. it's a it's it's all markup, isn't it? They didn't pay for it. Um, yeah, exactly. there was a. a yeah. A video not or article not so long ago of uh, an American general getting quite irate with the Ukrainians because the Ukrainians aren't giving precise feedback to where these weapons and money is going. And for a lot of American generals, it feels like they're just throwing money in a well. And mm -hmm. that they they want a bit of bureaucracy behind it. They want receipts and paper trails of show me what you're doing with this weaponry. And the Ukrainians yeah. aren't offering it up. And I have just got another video that I want to show here from that um, interview that just goes into that quite well because it backs up that accusation quite well. Mm -hmm. Sorry, it's not, uh, not that. Okay. It's on. Okay. And there's the corruption, always the corruption in Ukraine. Western taxpayers, says John, are being robbed left and right. And then they take the insurance money and then they put the insurance money in their pockets. Oh, yeah. Is this what they do? Yeah, they take in the insurance money too. For foreign fighters? Yeah. Yeah. And was, this, was this a common practice? Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, like most, like I'd say 90% of the uh, families, they don't get their insurance money from. And uh, they take in salaries too, you know, like if a soldier terminates contract like I like I did with the Carpasco Siege I terminated contract yeah right uh, they take in the last uh, paycheck they take in this money for themselves but this doesn't go back into the unit it just goes straight to the commander's pocket and it's not just with the insurance it's with a I mean there's a there's a huge uh, black market going on with the uh, javelin rockets the M4 rifles and uh, M240 Bravo machine guns and all the weaponry coming in they take in all these and they sell it they have you uh, seen this yeah yeah, they stole, like, when uh, I was in Legion, they took, like, 20 Javelin rockets. They took, like, 60 M4s and, like, 20 M240s. Who, who took, uh, took them? Yeah, uh, like, the logistics uh, sergeant major and then the battalion commander. They were both in on it and stuff. They're actually... In Karpatskaya Siege or...? In Legion. Yeah, in, in, in Legion. Legion. Were, were they Ukrainians? Yeah, they were Ukrainians, yeah. Hmm. So it just validates that. That post that you just showed, shared, that was originally shared about six months ago. Of course, this interview was from last week. Uh, so he's saying the same thing. We know he was there. And now he's, he's, a, he's conf confirming that these markets are coming from these weapons that we're providing with Ukraine. Mm, mm. Yeah. I mean, what he just said there also just reminds me of, well, uh, it actually smells and sounds very much the same as many of the other Western-backed uh, operations. So the South Vietnamese army had the same thing, corruption, ghost soldiers, stuff being put on sale. The Afghan army, as we all know, was mostly on paper. Um, you know, people paying salaries to things that didn't exist, just putting them in their pockets. 
weapons going willy-nilly all over the place, uh, sold to whoever they wanted to really. Um, yeah, this is the same flavor, the similar, fla similar flavor of yeah. Western-backed regime, government, puppet, I don't know what you want to call it. Uh, yeah, and, and stuff going missing and salaries being paid and salaries being stolen. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sad. Enough, yeah. That comparison is fight. fantastic yeah. because the composition of the Ukrainian army is so similar in that respect that there are so mm. many um, political paramilitaries and political militias that have been incorporated into the army. And you've got to mm. think, well, what level of incorporation? By incorporate, do you mean that you've, you've sent them a letter saying you are now officially part of the Ukrainian army? And then there's not really much sort of paperwork and bureaucracy or checks and balances that go with that. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and also, yeah, this is the speed and escalation and sort of scale, how big this war and how quickly it got that big and how much money was pumped in. It is just, uh, you can expect there's going to be so much more lost, so much lost. Yeah, this is not an orderly escalation. I mean, not that escalations usually are, but uh, this was like, you know, super, super chaotic. Um, yeah, I mean, the other thing I wanted to cover with this then is, is I don't know if you, if you want to talk about sort of the military side. I think we've covered quite a lot of the military side of things. Yeah. Um, Chris, I don't know if you go any further into this or not. Any other stuff, particularly about fighting and sort of troops and stuff like that? Uh, in terms of the actual fighting, uh, I, I think we've sort of, covered qu quite a lot obviously we don't want to really go into battle by battle because there, there's yeah, more than much. we could do in a, in a day um yeah and yeah. it sort of dates everything because it's the, the fighting's ongoing it's, it's going to be yeah. out, out of date yeah. by the time people watch the video so yeah. i'm not sure yeah, how yeah, much sure. good it can yeah, be the closing point on that is that most of the fighting right now will take place it seems in don around donbass particularly around bakhmut uh Maybe we'll see a counteroffensive at some point by the Ukrainians later this year. We'll see. But at the moment, the Russian escalation, the mobilization is, is focused around Bakhmut and Donbass. Um, so we'll see where that goes. I, I agree with you. Yeah, we're not going to try and make any grand uh, you know, assessments and descriptions right now. It's too big and there's too much to cover for the whole war. So you can watch maybe our last yeah. video or other videos on the specifics of that. And I think the map's done a good job of that. But in terms of economics, so the other side of this war um, has been the the economic side right so we saw grain disruption fuel disruption um you know gas prices going up energy prices going up all sorts of stuff oh sorry just one final point actually regarding fighting before i go into the economics um according to business insider so ukraine says russia faced its deadly day deadliest day in the war yet with over a thousand troops killed in a 24-hour period so all of we've just said all of we just all of that we've just discussed regarding how big this war is it is actually getting more intense the fighting yeah. is actually increasing. The casualties are going up. So this is only going to get worse as far as the tra tra trajectory is going now. So, yeah, final point on the fighting. Um, yeah, so come back to the economics. Uh, the sanctions. So I'm just going to show you here from the Washington Post a, a, a question that they posed. You know, did the sanctions work? What was the What's the stock take on that? How effective were they? So without reading the entire article, um, at a sort of glance, no, they failed. Um, the Russian economy only shrank by 2.1%. Okay, so projections were, you know, 10, 15, 20%. But Putin uh, made an announcement in November, oh, sorry, recently, that basically only 2.1% reduction, which is not at all what the West was hoping to get. These sanctions were supposed to cripple the Russians. 
um, uh, also other yeah uh, other calculations put it at two point five percent. Comparatively, the Ukrainian economy has shrunk by thirty three percent, which is a massive massive uh, shrink. Yeah. So any, any thoughts on the sanctions, uh, Chris? While we while we're looking at this, uh, yeah. So obviously they have completely backfired. I think we all know. Um, I've been watching a few uh, bloggers who've been going around sanction hit Russia, um, looking at all the businesses that dramatically announced that they've left, such as McDonald's and your, your Costas. And you just got to think that the agreement that these companies had with Russia in the first place was that they operated there, 10% of the money goes back to the United States and the rest stay, stays in Russia. But it seems like they've left officially. The building's still there, the staff's still there, the stock is still there. All that has happened is that 10% doesn't go back to America anymore. You can still go to McDonald's in Russia. It's not called McDonald's yes. anymore, but it is McDonald's. It's just got a different logo. Yeah. Right, uh, right. It, it seems so short-sighted and everything was sort of done for political dramatic effect. And of course, right. we've been paying in the UK out of our noses for gas. Uh, there's a trend in Russia that's going on recently on VK, which is the Facebook alternative, of um, Russians leaving their hobs on. Just videos of them burning gas because they're paying dollars a month of it. Just show how I can heat my entire apartment up with just, just my, my burners. And the same thing is going on in in, in, our, in the DNR, in Donetsk. <laughs> they're paying next to nothing for gas. And <laughs> so it's like, well, what are these sanctions actually doing if, if the only people that have been affected by them are the people that have applied them? <laughs> yeah, good point. Good point. Um, just to put in the sort of macro statistics here. This is um, from a man called Girard Dipipo. Um, apparently, he's an important person to listen to. But he shows the statistics here of the US dollar billions um, of Russia's current account balance. So as you can see, 2013, 2014, or up and down, up and down, at the outbreak or escalation of conflict, you can see that the reserves, US dollar billions, goes up. So, And the share of GDP goes up. So yeah, basically their economy, because they managed to sell gas to others and because the prices of things like oil and gas were changed, uh, they benefited from this to the point where, you know, they, they managed to dodge um, the worst effects of the sanctions. So two, yeah, 2.5 or 2.1% shrinkage. I, I think just on the devils in the detail though, I do think that those sanctions will have a long-term effect. So we've talked about chips before. So chips, uh, you know, complex microchips for yes, weapon microchips. systems and computers and stuff. That is a, that's not something that can just be turned on overnight and, you know, an industry that can just emerge overnight. It's not like steel. It's not like crops. It's, it's very complex um, stuff that there is a limited amount of knowledge and uh, people that know how to make it and companies that know how to make it. And that will affect them in the long term. Um, although having said that, this was said six months ago that because there's no, uh, you know, the, the supply of complex microchips to Russia has been uh, severed uh, because of the sanctions, that they'll stop, they'll run out of missiles, cruise missiles and whatnot, you know, next week, next month, imminently. Um, they've been saying that for six months. So, and they haven't. There's still a yeah. wave after wave of, of strikes taking place across targets across Ukraine. So that hasn't happened. Well, this is um, just to sort of jump back into military sort of side of it as well again this is sort of a, a negative effect of the west's approach to similar to what they did with covid 
the economy that the West have built up of just enough, just in time, where mm. we don't stockpile anything, where the Russians do. So when they're saying, oh, the Russians are going to run out of uh, rockets that have microchips in them, so <laughs> they've got 70 years' worth of old Soviet artillery that doesn't have any microchips in it. That they'll start throwing kitchen sinks at you if they need to. But this is why the reports have come out that they're going to be using um, deliveries of North Korean weapons, which you can almost guarantee doesn't have a, a microchip in either. So it's it's yeah. very much that it's a problem that the West have developed in their head that Russia can quite easily circumnavigate. You can guarantee mm. that they're going to the West are going to run out of microchipped weapons before Russia run out of the old pull string artillery artillery shells. That's such a good point. Yes, yeah. Uh, uh, actually, that is something that to dip back in the military stuff has already been discussed. Uh, the British Army, for example has from many sources, even Western sources have been saying that if this happened uh, anywhere in Western Europe, France or Germany or whatever, and Britain tried to help or even on Britain's British soil, um, God forbid, uh, they would not be able to sustain this kind of conflict for a week, uh, yeah. definitely not a month. Um, yes. So I agree with your statement there that yeah, the, the, the Russians have lots of shells and lots of materials. Uh, and have outlasted all of the estimates given so far regarding shells or missiles or um, tanks even. Um, yeah, just to dip back into the, you already mentioned uh, McDonald's. So I've got a clip here of the replacement. So these companies that left, uh, clothing companies, Starbucks, um, McDonald's, uh, have been replaced by Russian equivalents. So I'm going to show you, first I'm going to show you the McDonald's. So this is the McDonald's now. In, uh, in in Russia. This is what it looks like. So Russia now has its own version of McDonald's. It comes under a different name here. It's called Kusno Itochka, which essentially means tasty, and that's it. Also has a different label or different logo. You can see it right there. It's supposed to symbolize, the company says, fries and a hamburger. Other than that, a lot of things are actually very similar to McDonald's. However, there is no Big Mac, and there also is no Happy Meal either. As you can see, this place is pretty much jam-packed. There's really a lot of people who came here. We spoke to some of the customers, including some actually wearing the symbols of Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine, which, of course, the Russians call a special military operation. Food and politics have nothing in common. Like, come on, man, keep things separate. Basically, it's uh, important for me to have McDonald's uh, field. I think it's not a good idea because uh, McDonald's, it's, uh, it's a history, it's a brand, it's it's great idea. Um, it, it's not uh, classical McDonald's. As you can see, the uh, Russian version of McDonald's looks a lot like McDonald's. You have the uh, double cheeseburger here, fries, and this is a nine-piece not Nick Nuggets, it's Nuggets, and some sort of soft drink. See how it tastes. So the packaging is also very... Let's skip ahead. So just to give perspective, of course, McDonald's was, uh, you know, even the Soviet Union had McDonald's. Um, so we reached the point where... They did. <laughs> so they, they hate the Russian Federation more than they hated the Soviet Union. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and, you just uh, said so that the knowledge for microchips is finite. But the knowledge for Big Macs is not. I mean, they've literally done yeah. nothing by pulling it. <laughs> right, 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 right. So, yeah. Um, 
it's, it's, it's quite funny, that one. Uh, there's also, I'll show you the next one, which is um, some of the drinks. And of course, what's happened to um, Starbucks. Uh, the drinks are quite entertaining. I think the, the, the in, in creativity is, is, is coming out. Hold on. So here we go. Let's put the, okay, I'll turn the music off. But yeah, so there we go. It's called Stars Coffee. So, um, you know, only a few letters have been removed, really. <laughs> and uh, still has the woman sort of symbol. It's the same, pretty much. Um, the other stuff they've been making is, of course, here's the McDonald's again, which has been replaced by Tasty. I forgot what the Russian name was. Uh, but drinks, so soft drinks, uh, have also been replaced. So Coca-Cola and Pepsi, as you can see. Uh, here we have Funky Monkey Cola and Local Cola is some of the replacements. And then just Local Cola, Cola was the name of... Uh, back in communist Romania, there was a musical called Loca Cola, where it was a cowboy. He went to a bar in, in Romania and he plays a song called Loca Cola to introduce Coca-Cola soft drinks to communist Romania. That's where they've got that name from. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Brilliant trivia. Well done. <laughs> 10 points. That's brilliant. <laughs> so let's see what else they've got. Um, so some statistics here. Let's jump ahead. So we've also then got uh, Fanta. Well, there's Back to Stars Coffee. Let me show you the Fanta. So they've got a nice replacement for Fanta called Cool Cola. Fancy. We've got Cool Cola. Yeah. Here we go. This is the the, the place. It's called Frussel. Any communist reference for that one? No. 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 <laughs> it feels weird that they're depriving Fanta. Fanta was Nazi Coke anyway, wasn't it? Yeah, it's true, that. actually. Yeah. <laughs> that was, that was, I mean, they've obviously shipped that to the Ukrainians. Um, yeah. Uh, Fantola. This is Fantola, which has also got a bit of a panda, a unicorn. Nice. And what's the last one we've got here? Fantola got into a bit of trouble. They said they were being original. And the last one here is a sort of another variant of Coke called Cola. If you can, can't read Cyrillic, that says Cola um, with a bird on it and stuff. So, yeah. There you go. That's what that's what's happened to some of the brands, uh, you know, after these sanctions. So in in a way, I think this is, you know, a, a look at what a de a sort of a world that was globalized and then deglobalized, at least in some places, what that looks like. Yeah. When you try and replace globalized brands with with local stuff, like national um, capitalism. Hey. When you try and in, turn international capitalism back into national capitalism. Yes. 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 Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if you can turn back the wheels of globalization. I, I just, I think that yeah, it's quite a force to push. Yes, back. it is. Uh, and we're, we're, through the war, we're seeing at least a glimmer of what that might look like if you try and, you know, go back to national capitalism, I suppose. Yeah. Anyway, um, but that's, that's the sanctions and that's what's happening. Uh, I think then we should talk about the peace plan. Uh, Chris, what do you think? Yes, so uh, we've got here um, a clip of the, oh, no, that's not the right one, uh, a clip of the foreign minister sort of announcing it. Uh, Chinese foreign minister. Mm. Yeah, so obviously uh, our podcast listeners won't be able to sort of see what's going on. Uh, but obviously there's not a tremendous amount to sort of unpack here. So basically they're announcing the... 12 points, I believe this is. Yeah, 12 points. Yep. Yeah, and 
to be honest, it's, it's had a quite a surprising reaction internationally. What do you, what do you think about how it's been received? Um, to be honest, actually, so I haven't looked so much into how it's been received. I've read the, the points and I, I, I actually, well, I think uh, sort of a bit of, um, I wouldn't say, uh, I wouldn't say conspiracy theory on my part, but I do think that it's interesting. So I'm, I'm going to put up the actual document here, what it says, but I do think it's interesting that we've had in the last week, um, after this peace plan was revealed, the FBI and ministry of energy releasing their, um, opinions on or their official assessments, I should say, on where COVID came from, the COVID lab leak theory. And they yes. both said that they believe it was a, uh, a Chinese um, lab leak, The COVID yeah. was a lab but To leak. be fair to the, to the yeah. FBI, which is the, it's the same very often, um, they said that this lab leak theory is a theory that they hold with a low optimism. So, yes, low so confidence. That's, what was the point yeah, of even saying it then? So, well, we don't yes. really believe it, but we are saying it. <laughs> Did the FBI? I thought. I mean, I knew the, the Department of Energy, because of course, the Department of Energy is the first person we go to when we think about pandemics. Um, they all said low confidence. Their, their internal intelligence agency said they had low confidence yeah, on this. They had low confidence theory. in their own theory. Right, right, right. So I, I just thought that that was quite interesting because it came after the release of this, and in this document, yeah. so in the twelve points, you have um, the Chinese mention um, that they uh, oppose the development of any uh, chemical, biological uh, weapons. So, you know, I, I, I don't yeah. feel like the people at the FBI are stupid enough to realize the implications of them releasing their opinion, saying that the Chinese released or accidentally released COVID um, and how that relates to the official big Chinese opinion now on um, uh, this 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 twelve point here, which mentions biological weapons. So I, I don't know. I don't think they would that would have been lost on them. I don't think that's something that's an accident. Um, I think that's certainly something they calculated. But sorry, this is just my my aside. My only thought that I had so far um, regarding this and its reaction. So I, I've only had a look at the actual points, um, and I've thought more about what the Chinese uh, points are addressing. So point number one: respect the sovereignty of all countries. Okay, um, I think this point is very much. Uh, as the UN General Assembly has voted that the, you know, the respecting the sovereignty of all countries is very important. It's a fundamental element of the United Nations Charter. Um, so yes. I think that they're, they're realizing that, of course, that needs to be said. And well, I think this is something that China are very consistent of. They've always, they've always uh, that, respected yeah. the sovereignty of other countries, which is why they're so vigorously defending people who are using a comparison, saying, well, isn't what is happening in Ukraine similar to what you want to do with Taiwan, which of course their response would be, well, no, because Taiwan is a breakaway province yeah, it's of China as a part by of their own admission. Yeah. They are the Republic of China. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also everyone represents one China. Well, not everyone, almost everyone apart from, you know, Eswatini. Yeah. <laughs> so it is a false comparison that West media are making when they are trying to do this. So I, I, th I think this is a good point for them to have put in as number one. Yeah, no, no, yeah. You can see the structure of this is, is very intentional, as you would expect from the Chinese yes. ministry. Yeah, so that point there is, is of course, actually, is there's a, is a, a mention or sort of an aside to the Taiwan question. So leave, uh, respect the sovereignty of countries. Don't involve yourself in the internal affairs of other countries. Um, you know, uh, and then the second point, of course, is 
very much taking the Russian perspective of this conflict, right? So indeed, they are saying, don't invade other countries, of course. Um, you know, we, we can understand that. We can respect that. Of course, there is that is a violation. Um, but then they're straight away saying, hold on. Yeah, we should abandon the Cold War mentality. That's the second point, which if you read into it, then um, you can see talking about block mentality. So, uh, yeah, so the security of a region should not be achieved by strengthening or expanding military blocks. So this is very much straight into NATO should not be growing and encroaching into any region in a way that compromises or threatens other countries. Um, you know, uh, the yeah. legitimate security interests and concerns of all countries must be taken seriously and addressed properly. Okay, so there's no simple, simple solution to a complex issue. So this is very much, I think, saying that it's all well and good respecting the sovereignty of all countries. We must do that, of course, but we also can't let military blocks grow um, and ignore that effect that it has on, on the legitimate security concerns of countries that are in the, the sites of those military blocks. So yeah, exactly. uh, you, can see the balance. you can see the balance being struck there. Fair assessment to put in there. Any hmm. one with any sort of a real political sort of understanding knows what NATO is, knows that it has always been a no Russia club. Proven by the fact that Stalin requested to join, Putin requested to join twice, I believe. And they yeah. said no, because it was almost just to prove the point that as I think one of the original founders of NATO pointed out, NATO's job is to keep the Germans down and the Russians out. And the Americans in. Yeah. Yeah. And the Americans yeah. in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. No, I think we've we've covered that before. And I think I think our listeners know this too. That that's that is the nature of NATO. NATO has proven itself to be uh is as such. Um yes. yeah. Third points, I mean, so I'll just read the points. So point one we've covered, point two we've covered. Point three is ceasing hostilities, so ending the war. Four is resuming peace talks. Five, resolving the humanitarian crisis. Six, protecting civilians and prisoners of war. Seven, keeping nuclear power plants safe. Eight, reducing strategic so risks. Just that, so seven, just to quickly Go ahead. put on that. Obviously, that's a... One of the allegations that the West keep making of Russia, which when you stop to think about it for more than two minutes, is ridiculous. That the uh, accusation that Russia have been occupying a nuclear plant and then shilling it. Yes. <laughs> and yes. It seems yes. when you say it out loud, it's, it's, it's like Chernobyl was in their control when the, the media were accusing them of bombing it. This is basically about Zaporizhia. I mean, there might be other power plants that I'm not familiar with. Yeah. The, the situation you've just described is Zaporizhia, where the Russians hold it and the Ukrainians have been trying to take it back and shelling in order to, you know, try and adva uh, advance uh, right next to the power station. So, yes, yeah. like the Russians wouldn't shell their own power station. They're in control of it. They have it in their hands. It's, it's in their possession. Why would they shell it? Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah, that, that's that is it is ridiculous. Um, yeah, um, just on point eight, so reducing strategic risks, which is very similar to you know point seven actually. This is where China opposes the research, development, use of chemical and biological weapons by any country under any circumstances. So this is what I was talking about earlier about the restatement by the FBI and the Department of Energy um, from the U.S. releasing that they have with low confidence think that COVID was a lab leak. Um, I do feel like that. Is not well, I mean, I, 
they, they would have known that there's a contradiction. They're trying, they're contradicting at least some statement here by, by the Chinese or at least the Chinese position. But yeah, again, it's just an aside. Um, number nine, facilitating grain exports. Number 10, stopping unilateral sanctions. And 11, keeping industrial supply chains stable. Final point, promoting post-conflict reconstruction. Um, on this one here, stopping unilateral sanctions. So this is, again, very much aimed at the U.S. and collective West, if you want to use that term. Yeah. Um, Long-arm jurisdiction. Okay, so telling other countries how they can trade because of your policy. So denying other nations the independence of their own economic actions and choices. So if you are, you know, Mali or um, Burkina Faso, um, putting sanctions in place which tell you that if you trade with um, Russia or trade with a Russian company, whether that be with grain or, okay, well, I think grain doesn't apply in this case, but sanctions are pretty wide. Um, I think fertilizer was actually applied at some point, sanctions on that. Um, bottom line being that yes, Trump, you're telling, you're telling those countries what to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so, and obviously this is something that China have been, again, consistent of. They have never voted to sanction a country. They've always abstained from sanctions. And it's, it's something that they've permanently believed in, that sanctions are not a useful tool for promoting behaviors amongst countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It is, it is, you know, in some form of a form of imperialism, a form of unilateralism that you are dictating how people and the economy, the global economy, how it will yeah. be run and how it will uh, pursue and how, and how individual nations can pursue their own um, economic uh, aims and, and goals. Yeah. Um, so I, th I think it's interesting the reaction that this peace plan, uh, the media, the Western media particularly, jumped on it before there'd been a look at it, saying, "Oh, this is just pro-Russian peace plan just to appease Russia." Where hmm. the actual reaction from leaders, Zelensky likes it for all intents and purposes. He says that he believes that he wants to believe that China is on the side of peace, and he's requested a meeting with Xi Jinping. Hmm. So it yeah. does seem that despite America hoping Zelensky would just repeat what they said, that this is, it, it seems like he is willing to give it a chance. And I hope that mm -hmm. is true because it's not nothing. China don't write fluff documents for the sake of releasing something. They didn't need to do anything. Mm -hmm. They didn't need to release a peace plan. Mm -hmm. And now they yeah. are the only superpower actually releasing a peace plan because America aren't. Well, I, I think that's the, the very clever um, placement um, that China has, has, has achieved here. I mean, I think they genuinely want peace. I don't think that they've done this as a chess move. I think they genuinely want the yeah. war to end. Many countries do um, and do recognize the Ukrainian side to this as well, the, the sovereignty element, which they've put as their first point. Um, yeah. But they have positioned themselves as people the the side that wants peace um which now again it's 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 awkward for western nations to say oh, do you agree with the the peace plan or the idea of this peace plan or some form of peace plan and the west effectively the, the those guys you see the spokespeople that stand at the front uh, answer questions from the press will have to say no um we don't think it's a legitimate peace plan they'll have to sort of spin something which yeah. uh, then which justifies why they don't agree with the peace so they then are anti-peace at that point um, and so, it goes on to that Cold War mentality that the American, this is a proxy war. 
there's a joke yeah. in Russia that that's going around currently that um, America will fight for the very last Ukrainian life. Oh yeah, and oh, that's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that seems to be as as it is. That the Americans don't want their own people to die, but they do want they'll they'll throw as many foreigners as they need to at Russia. Yeah, because yeah. that's what this is about. Yeah. Definitely. And, and you just said proxy war there, which actually a point I wanted to make earlier is you can almost see this as, um, you know, a proxy war within a proxy war. So you have, of course, Ukraine, which is the proxy war for Russia to fight the West, particularly the US, effectively the US. But now yeah. if you have China on the other side and you have all yeah. these threats from the US saying, don't give Russians lethal aid, you better not. And yes. um that effectively means that we have the potential. I mean, China might change its position, who knows, uh, and start supporting the Russians, which then effectively yeah. means that the Russians become a proxy for China to fight the US with. Yeah. So it would be almost a layering of, of, of a proxy war, a second layer. Of, of well, I think we've been saying this consistently in the past sort of year that everything that is going on is, it, it is the pre this conflict is one of the preludes to the inevitable conflict between America and China. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the only element to that discussion is that we always thought we've always thought about it as Taiwan will be next, and this is the prelude to that. But actually, perhaps we could argue that Russia could be the proxy between China and 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 and, uh, and Russia. Sorry, China and the U.S. Um, yeah. You know, in sort of in, if this escalated in a particular direction, which I don't want it to, which I don't think it should, um, but of course um, it has the potential to. If the Chinese feel that actually a bra a Russia breaking up is something they cannot. Um, stand, then they choose to to up, you know hold them up and support them and, and arm them and, and and supply them. That would be um, how that could happen um, quite easily if 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 the escalation continues um, going up and up and up. Um, yeah, uh, there's something you've said. I've complained. Well, give me a moment. But yeah, any thoughts? Um, no, not really. I, I, I feel like we, we might have sort of covered quite quite a bit really there, haven't we? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I think we have. Um, so our next episode uh, will be, I believe, on Nord Stream. So we've discussed a lot um, over the last sort of hour and 20 minutes, and a lot, has, a lot has happened in the last six months and over the year, of course. We didn't mention the Nord Stream pipeline, which actually, on my part at least, was intentional because it needs to be examined specifically because of how much uh, weight it carries um, from just from this war particularly, but also just geopolitically and also some of the characters that have written about and spoken about. And so there's Noam Chomsky, Seymour Hirsch, Jeff, uh, Jeffrey Sachs, uh, the Chinese government. There's a lot of people that have said and demanded some sort of inquiry and discussion about this. So we will be doing at least our small little part and uh, yes. looking at that uh, for at least an hour uh, next week. Um, yeah. So you have that for, that to look forward to. And, and of course, if you were listening and thinking, well, why haven't you discussed Nord Stream? It's because we're going to talk about it for an hour. That's why. <laughs> so yeah, um, thank you very much, everyone. And uh, thank you, Chris. And we'll catch you thank to you discuss Nord Stream too soon. Yeah, cheers, Chris. Bye-bye, everyone. Goodbye.